Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to 2024, the long-awaited new year. I'm Frank Davis, and uh, I'm with my law partner, John Surma. I'm in Dallas. He's in Houston. Through the miracle of modern technology, we're able to speak simultaneously. Good morning, John. Well, welcome to 2024. I hope your holidays were good. I hope that you indulged in a, a little New Year's celebration, but not too much New Year's celebration. And, I, and I, I hope that 2024 is off to a good start for you, Frank. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's too early to, to make that determination. Uh, give, give me a few weeks and uh, I'll do a post-mortem on January. Anyway, I thought a good topic for us to start with uh, for January 2024 was with regard to um, looking back at our previous year for employers to look back at their previous year and then to look forward to the current year. And I was thinking maybe uh, we could start with the 300 logs. Are you familiar with that document, the OSHA 300, John? As a matter of fact, Frank, you might be surprised to learn that I have a lot of familiarity with that document. (laughs) Every employer, with the limited exception of a few that are on the partially exempted list, has to maintain what are called OSHA records. And and it's not just the 300 log. It's the 300 is the 300A, and it's form 301s or their equivalent, sometimes the Workers' Compensation Force Report of Injury can be used in lieu of a Form 301. But yes, Frank, as a matter of fact, surprise, surprise, I have familiarity with the OSHA records. The injury logs. Annually, John, uh, I, you know, during these inspections that we help with, OSHA inevitably asks for, hey, I want the last five years of 300 logs. I want the last five years of 300 A's. And when we go back to look, sometimes those 300 A's, the numbers reflected on the 300A uh, don't align with the 300 logs because that 300A says, how many uh, days away from work did you have? And it adds up on the 300 log and that should be reflected on the 300A accurately. Uh, hours work should be reflected accurately on the 300A, so on and so forth. Uh, and and they don't. And I know when you're doing the same analysis, you always start with the 300 logs. With respect to January, you know, as a reminder to everybody who is not in the partially exempt industries, on February 1, on or before February 1, you have to post the 300A. And the, the 300A is derived from the OSHA Form 300. Uh, OSHA Form 300 entries are supposed to be executed within seven days of the employer becoming aware of something that meets the record-keeping criteria. So injury, illness, um, death, amputation, et cetera, um, that meets the record-keeping criteria. And as a consequence of that seven-day requirement, sometimes employers you know, fill out completely and totally accurate information as they know it, when they fill it out. But as the case progresses, as the employee heals or doesn't heal, the situation changes. And a lot of times we find that employers don't keep up with um, that 300 log, the the record 
excuse me, the, the OSHA Form 300, and they need to go back and they need to, to update or revise. You know, before we did this podcast and you know, we were talking about during COVID and how because of changing guidance, et cetera, and quite frankly, you know, developing sophistication, you know, a lot of things ended up on the logs early on during the pandemic, during early on during 2020, that later on in 2020 were, were you know, determined to not necessarily meet record keeping criteria. And so, you know, one thing employers may want to consider during the month of January before they post that OSHA form 300A, which then for most employers or for a lot of employers ends up having to be electronically reported on or before March 2, is to make sure that their 300, the, the, the sort of source document is updated and that the entries are all accurate and complete and, and, and up to date. So that when they do post the 300A or when they do electronically submit the 300A to, to OSHA, that that information is accurate. With regard to um, the, the 300A, there are other areas on the 300A that are that are not just uh, summaries of the 300 log. There are requirements for for somebody to certify it. There are requirements Correct. for an NAICS code, obviously the address for the facility. Have you had an instance where OSHA took exception to one of those forms being blank? Frank, you point out an important point. The, the left side of the form is the, the part of the form where the information from the 300 is kind of summarized. On the right side of the form, you're talking about all the stuff that you talk about, any ICS code, number of employees, the, the hours worked, et cetera. And I don't know why this is, but for some reason or another, when we transitioned from the old paper records to using computerized records, and particularly when you're talking about using records where your workers' compensation carrier or a third-party administrator is the one that it's, it's kind of compiling them. Folks don't keep the signed version, the signed certified version that they posted, the signed certified version that got um, submitted electronically to OSHA. And so as a result, when they're asked to produce the OSHA Form 300, the OSHA Form 300A, and they have to do so within four hours per the standard, all they have available is unsigned copies. And as you can imagine, when you submit an unsigned, uncertified copy of your OSHA Form 300A, OSHA issues a very easy to support, very easy to prove citation for failing to certify your OSHA Form 300A. But yeah, that, it happens all the time. And it, it, it's super simple, super easy. To I mean, it's one of those things where folks really struggle with it, but but you know, just have the appropriate person certify it before you submit it to OSHA. But again, remember, four hours, that's it. That's all you have. Have you heard of redlining the uh, OSHA Form 300? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times employers say, okay, hey, look, you know, when we filled this record out back, you know, three days after Joe was hurt, you know, this information was all accurate, but we subsequently learned either it wasn't as severe as we thought it was, or what we thought was medical treatment actually turned out to be first aid. And, and redlining is a simple process whereby the employer, and, and it doesn't have to be a red line color-wise, when there's an error, when you find out that you know it was first aid and not medical treatment, I mean, drawing a line 
through that entry is appropriate. I also think it's appropriate. And I think that, you know, consistent with OSHA's, you know, general advice that unless it's reduced to writing, it didn't happen. I also think that it makes sense to have, you know, some sort of kind of corresponding document, not necessarily something that you share with the public or, or the workforce as a whole, but something that you keep kind of in your records, you know, to kind of support it, you know, a written explanation as to, you know, what information was reviewed, what information was gathered, or why that affected what you thought the entry should be and why you made the change. But I mean, it's not required by OSHA by any stretch of imagination. But, but especially for larger employers, right? I mean, I personally would keep a record just to remind me, why did I make this decision? You know, what, Oh, absolutely. What, what was the difference between the day that I've or within seven days of, of what I thought was a recordable injury, they caused me to line it out four months later. What was my thought process? I, I like to do that anyway. I mean, we do that naturally as lawyers, right? We keep notes because we, we switch gears so often, we need to be able to pick up where we left off. I mean, look, you've worked with me long enough to know that if I don't write it down, there's a fairly decent chance on something minor. I'm not going to remember until I sit and think about it for an hour. Whereas I, I can look at my note and be boom, know the answer. So I completely agree with you. So here we are in January. Let's move away from record keeping for a bit. What I was going to bring up uh, is training calendars uh, and looking back at uh, 2023 training, seeing who's current and who's not is uh, since this is January and all, hopefully it's starting off to be a little bit of a slow year. Uh, people are looking for tasks to make their year busier out of the gate. Uh, one of the suggestions that I sometimes invite people to consider is looking at that training. What was completed in 2023, what's due in 2024. Your thoughts, John? I think that our thought process is often rather similar. I mean, I think, you know, most folks come back from the holidays and there's a couple of weeks of kind of ramp up time into the new year. And I think that that downtime is a good opportunity for folks to look at the training records and look at the training calendar from the prior year and make sure that everybody that was supposed to receive a particular training, particularly when training is mandated on a particular refresher cycle. So as a, for instance, with pit operators, powered industrial truck operators, once they're certified, then they have to be recertified every three years going back and making sure that, in fact, you know, certification, recertification, training, retraining, whatever the case is, you know, going back and making sure that, you know, when in March you did the lockout tagout training or, or whatever the training was and that everybody who is supposed to take that training actually took that training, I think it's a great opportunity to to, to, to catch any, for lack of a better term, in a kind of a throwback term to the 2000 election, hanging chads don't exist out there. Oh my goodness. Whether they're named Chad or not. I like that. I like that looking back, you know, your forklift program, respiratory protection program, cranes, hearing conservation. Respiratory protection program, fit testing. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Not just, not just the training because with a lot on that, with a lot, but with some of these standards, it's not just that you train folks, but that you actually do some other function. So like with respiratory protection, 
that you actually do the fit test on an annual basis. And, and reminder for most of what OSHA standards stand for, when they're talking about doing something on an annual basis, for most of these standards, when they're talking about you have to do this on an annual basis, they're not saying you can do the fit test in January of one year and December of the next year. It means within 365 days of the last instance that you did something. There's the fit test. There's audiometrics for hearing conservation programs. You've got your periodic inspections for your lockout tagout programs. But to me, the way to, to, to kind of throw the net, ensure you're not overlooking anything on an annual basis, is to consider uh, developing some type of training calendar where an employer at the same time of year, every year, looks at these issues. Uh, and uh, I know when I was first introduced to this practice a while back, one of the very first things I learned to do was to develop an annual calendar where each month you look at a different aspect of your safety program. So for instance, it's uh, January fit test month, January respiratory protection month. Hey, welcome to February forklifts. And March is a uh, hearing conservation month. So on an annual basis, the employer's taking a look at their programs and conducting the retraining that needs to be conducted conducting the fit tests, doing the, uh, the, the automa- audiometric studies, evaluating, for instance, even um, if there's a need to, to do new noise assessment in certain areas or new, or, or new air monitoring in certain areas. I haven't seen in a long time an employer that uses that calendar uh, on a regular basis. But I tell you, when I started out, it seemed like everybody was doing a calendar back in the early 2000s. Am, am I alone in that memory? Is it Was that an isolated thing for me? Or tell me you have a similar memory. That was the case. And I think that there's less of that at present because so many employers have transitioned to learning management systems or have you know basically kind of outsourced their training so that you have a third-party provider who you know functionally is running a learning management system doing that. Um, but but I agree. I mean, I think that it makes a lot of sense for employers to sit down and look at whether it's their own internal learning management system or their training program or that third party program. And I think that for the exact reasons that you described, you know, look at what they're doing. But I also think it makes a lot of sense for employers to also be looking critically at what the table of contents is schedule, I'm not sure the right term in LMS ease is, but, you know, basically going through and making sure that it still pairs up with their workplace and workforce appropriately. So as a, for instance, you know, and talking about, you know, a lot of our, our workplaces, particularly in region six, where we have a lot of chemicals in those workplaces you know, how's the number of chemicals, has the type of chemicals changed at all? And as a consequence of that change, do we now need to update or revise? Have processes changed? Do we need to update or revise our training? Have nothing else. Go through that SDS book and make sure you've got the, the right SDSs in there. Or if you're using the electronic, make sure that that's up to date. Well, and, and speaking of relics of a bygone era, I mean... It, it's far and few between that I encounter an employer that actually has a physical book anymore. I mean, most of them have gone to some sort of electronic system, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Take a look at it and make sure 
stuff that you no longer have in the workplace, get rid of those SDSs, stuff that you, you have introduced, get new ones and, and update them. There's some talk about a revision to the GHS system coming. And so, you know, make sure, I mean, I, I don't know, Frank, the last time you had to look at what an employer had and, and, and found an MSDS sheet, but that's over a decade ago that we went from MSDSs to SDSs. And, you know, it makes sense for employers to go through their SDSs and, and make sure that they don't have any of the old MSDSs. Yeah. And to get with their chemical suppliers and make sure they have the most current version of the exactly. SDS. Exactly. I think you're, you're spot on on those, Frank. And, and I mean, look, in your experience, based on what you've seen, how often do employers actually go through and take a look to make sure that everything is current? Well, the reason I bring it up is because I've, I've run into several instances where they didn't and OSHA gets, you know, notices it. Let's say they just notice it. And, and that's not the kind of attention we want to attract. We, we, like you've said, right, you want to you want to look professional. The last thing, and I want to make this short, this seems like a good time of year to do a little housekeeping too. Uh, how many inspections have you been on where OSHA's walking around and they find an old N95 hanging on the wall? Or, or worse, uh, an elastomeric respirator hanging on the wall with uh, the employer saying, well, we don't use respirators. We, we don't authorize the use of respirators. And then OSHA's question is, well, why is that, why is that hanging there? Well, because I didn't notice it. I would have taken it down and thrown it away. Well, some of the compliance officers will let you take it down and throw it away, but others will write you up for it. Uh, have you seen that? Oh, absolutely. And, 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 and Frank, I mean, I think that there's a number of us who kind of preach the same sermon on this issue. And, you know, I mean, a lot of the headaches that we encounter in inspections probably would be avoided had employers, you know, on a, at a minimum annually, better quarterly or even better monthly kind of walk through their place of employment and looked for, you know, super low hanging fruit. So, you know, you're no longer using respirators. You don't have a voluntary use program in place, you know, making sure that you don't have respirators hanging out, you know, yeah, electrical, right. electrical cord. I mean, Frank, how many inspections have you been on where clients got dinged because tucked away in some corner, some employee is, is grinding away on something and they've got a, a bad cord on it or it's missing a ground or, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing more than one. Yeah, well, yeah. you got your blocked exit doors. You got your blocked electrical, electrical panels. panels. Yeah. You got ke chemicals that aren't labeled. You got spills that aren't cleaned up. You got trip hazards, uh, aisleways that aren't wide enough. You've got uh, daisy-chained extension cords or or using extension cords for permanent placed equipment, damaged outlet covers, damaged switch plates. Something to consider is to do a little bit of housekeeping. Well, that and, you know, especially in some of the workplaces that some of our employers keep where, you know, even in the quote unquote shop or production area or whatever you want to call it, where there may be a little bit of a ramp up for them as well coming off the holidays. You know, it's a perfect time to kind of put people to work doing, you know, those kind of one off odds and ends where, you know, you're you're dealing with the electrical cords, you're dealing with 
the knockouts, you're dealing with the, the receptacle covers, et cetera, and just you know getting them knocked out and keeping people busy in the process. All good stuff. Any other parting thoughts as we wrap up this, our first in our podcast series for 2024? We could go on for hours about things that employers might consider doing going into the new year. I think that we hit you know kind of the most salient and most pressing ones for January. I, I do think though that you know one of the things that employers should also give some consideration to is you know kind of going through their safety manual and making sure that their safety manual uh, actually reflects what's going on in their workplace. And if there are some new hazards that have been introduced, if there are some new processes that have been introduced, if, if there's new chemicals, whatever the case might be, you know, make the revisions and then, you know, kind of in a corresponding manner, if you've moved away from a hazardous chemical to something that's less hazardous, you, know, you can make some changes that, that reflect that as well. So John, it's been a pleasure talking to you this morning. I look forward to our next conversation about Region 6 safety perspectives. In the interim, I hope all our listeners and you have a great next couple of weeks. Hey, Frank, thank you so much. Look forward to uh, doing this again with you. Have a great 2024. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.